December 26, 2017. Pavel Lerner, a director at UK cryptocurrency exchange Exmo, is leaving his Kiev, Ukraine office. A black Mercedes van screams to a stop, and six masked men emerge and force Pavel inside. The Exmo website is subjected to a denial-of-service attack, though it's unclear whether that is related. Soon, Exmo executives are reading over a letter demanding $1 million paid in Bitcoin for Pavel's release. Is this the future for cryptocurrency investors? I'm Peter Kay, and this is Bitkenstein's Table. I'm the Senior Architect and Director of Globalization at ICO Alert. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and not the views of ICO Alert or any other entity. None of this is specific professional advice of any kind. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes, so I hope it helps you learn and enjoy life. It sounds absurd, but one of the best ways to fight the dozens of cognitive biases, the mental shortcuts that can become thinking problems, which we use in day-to-day life, is to remember that we humans overgeneralize. We find meaning, patterns, stories, and principles in order to understand the world. This is the only way we can use our mental resources effectively, but it also means that we assign meanings to things that might not have those meanings. We selectively remember things, and we exaggerate things in order to fit the patterns we already hold, and we apply stereotypes liberally. We cannot really defeat these tendencies, since attempting to live without general principles would turn every tiny decision into analysis paralysis. But if we realize that we overgeneralize and we keep that in mind, we can catch a number of errors and prevent them from affecting decisions that really matter. Again, it sounds absurd. Due to our cognitive biases, the best way to keep track of our many cognitive biases is to overgeneralize them into the single category of overgeneralization. But it helps with a lot of cases. Remember that humans overgeneralize. The blockchain space is full of generalizations. Cryptocurrencies are decentralized. We tell everyone that, except that, to varying degrees, they're not. As long as we are aware that this is a generalization, we're okay. How about another one? Cryptocurrencies are unseizable wealth, we say. Well, maybe. If someone takes the right security precautions, it's not possible to seize their bitcoins or other cryptocurrencies by raiding their home, picking their pocket, or shaking them down as they escape across the border. This is wealth that is unseizable by traditional methods. So what are the methods by which a group can seize cryptocurrency? Obviously, many would-be thieves try social engineering. They attempt to get you to give them your keys, or to send coins to incorrect addresses. 
If you've been in the space for a little while, you've seen bad emails or URLs with diacritics like dots and lines above and below letters directing you to malicious websites in an attempt to steal a private key or an exchange login and password from you. But crypto-conscious people are becoming more and more aware of these social attacks and are building more and more protections against them. Soon, serious cryptocurrency thieves will begin to turn elsewhere. Kidnappers who kidnap for ransom, according to rough estimates, make about $500 million a year on their crimes. It's been a major business in places like Mexico City. My favorite movie with Denzel Washington takes place there, in which Denzel plays a bodyguard gone on a mad vengeance streak when kidnappers call and say that Pita, the girl he was protecting and who was kidnapped, is now dead. The film is called Man on Fire, and among its other good production values, the cinematography is unique and excellent. Critics attacked the movie for becoming too violent and vigilante as it progressed. They tallied only 39% on Rotten Tomatoes, while audiences give it an 89%. I may run a philosophy podcast that gets a bit snobby at times, but that doesn't mean I always agree with the movie critics over the fans. The story of Man on Fire is based on real-life Mexico City kidnapper Daniel Arismendi Lopez, who made over $40 million on ransoms. These kidnappings were often assisted by police officers. I've avoided areas of the world at times for this reason. During my time in North India, many groups and people warned me not to travel to the province of Assam. I really wanted to visit Assam. But kidnapping Westerners was particularly common that year. Even though my brother and I were poor by American standards, we were doing fine by Indian standards at the time. Kidnapping for ransom is a worldwide issue. India, Mexico, Arizona, France, wherever you go, it's about as old as money itself. Kidnapping for crypto isn't a new thing either. The first case I know of was January 20th, 2015, when a Canadian expat in Costa Rica, Ryan Piercy, was kidnapped and a $500,000 ransom was demanded in Bitcoin. Ryan was held for five weeks outside, chained by the neck to a tree. Later that year, Wong Kwan, a Hong Kong businessman, was released after a ransom of $13 million was paid in Bitcoin. In May of this year, 2018, 13-year-old Katlego Marite was kidnapped in South Africa, and $120,000 was demanded in Bitcoin. Thankfully, a friend of the family found a CCTV recording of the event, located the car involved, in the area, and alerted police. 
and the boy was recovered and the kidnappers arrested. But these cases were not due to the victims involved holding cryptocurrency. Catlego's parents reportedly didn't even know what Bitcoin was. Bitcoin was demanded because Bitcoin accounts are not freezable or seizable. Transactions can't be locked up or reversed by the authorities. Nor do kidnappers have to risk a high-tension drop-off of a briefcase of cash. But Pavel Lerner's case, the one we opened this episode with, was different. His kidnappers knew that he worked at a cryptocurrency company. Pavel was ultimately safely released, the $1 million ransom reportedly paid. Apparently, Pavel's kidnappers had believed that he had access to his exchange's funds, which wasn't true. Others had to transfer Pavel's ransom rather than Pavel transferring it himself. So this kidnapping turned ransom may have originally been planned to not even have a ransom letter involved. Perhaps it wasn't initially meant to be a ransom attack at all, but what I call a wrench attack. It's one of my favorite XKCD comics. XKCD is a stick figure webcomic on technology and other things. Intelligent characters make absurd suggestions and inventions and often counter them with sarcastic shutdowns. One brief comic is titled Security. It's just two panels. The left is a crypto nerd's imagination. His laptop's encrypted. Let's build a million dollar cluster to crack it. No good. It's 4096 bit RSA. Blast. Our evil plan is foiled. The right panel is titled, What Would Actually Happen? His laptop's encrypted. Drug him and hit him with this five dollar wrench until he tells us the password. Got it. That's what would happen in most cases. The wrench attack uses physical violence, other physical interventions, or the threat of these things to get someone to give up a passkey, sign a cryptocurrency transaction, or something related. On January 28, 2018, Danny Aston, a British cryptocurrency trader, had his home broken into and was forced at gunpoint to make a Bitcoin transaction. Those who are known or suspected to have access to large amounts of cryptocurrency might become targets of these gunpoint attacks. And while papers signed under force or duress might not hold up in court, the court can invalidate them. Cryptocurrency transactions for most cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, can't be reversed by courts. They cannot be invalidated. In this strange way, Digital assets are actually more seizable than other assets. If they are seized from you at gunpoint, there's no helpline to call, and there's no government agency to appeal to to get them back. Unseizability is one of the major attractions of cryptocurrency. As Blocktower Capital's Ari Paul likes to point out frequently, 
What if the victims of the Holocaust, or other genocidal episodes in human history, could have escaped across the border with their wealth carried with them as a password in their heads? They could have traveled lighter and safer, and they could have had the means to start a new life whenever they arrived in a safer land. Unseizability is one of the best things cryptocurrency has to offer. How can we close or at least avoid the remaining loopholes in cryptocurrency's unseizability, the wrench attacks, and the ransom attacks? There are a number of technological solutions in the works for protection against phishing and other attacks. Multi-signature accounts can prevent an individual's signature from transferring funds from an account without another signature involved. This really just turns the wrench attack into a more complicated ransom attack, but it does help somewhat. Some systems are experimenting with limited decentralized protections. EOS has a three-day freeze on tokens that are unstaked, preventing them from being transferred during that time. In other words, you, the EOS account holder, can notice the tokens being unstaked and then use your owner key to change your account's active key so that the compromised active key no longer has the authority to transfer tokens when the three-day waiting period is up. This is helpful against gunpoint break-ins, but not so much against kidnappings. Many kidnappings have lasted longer than three days as it is. So if you're in the cryptocurrency space, or in some related space close to it, and you have ideas on creative technological solutions to this problem, Listen, the community is ready to support the development of your ideas. Closing these loopholes in cryptocurrency's unseizability is in the interest of us all. But even if protections will emerge, they're in the future. What can we do until then? It surprises me how we instinctively flaunt our wealth. In the human economy, wealth is power, So, much as a lion roars, or a bear rears up to intimidate others with its might, some humans feel compelled to drive Lamborghinis, throw wads of cash around, and play with gold-plated golf clubs. This can be dangerous. I don't mean you're in danger of exchanging close personal connections for mobs of shallow admirers, as true as that may be. And I don't mean you're in danger of pride corrupting your soul or spirit or mind or essence or whatever your view on metaphysics. I mean that people who make it publicly known that they've made lots of money on cryptocurrency make themselves targets. Sometimes this is unavoidable, of course. Brian Armstrong can't reasonably go live in a distant cave. The Winklevoss twins can't reasonably change their identities. And Charlie Lee can't publicly claim to sell all of his crypto assets. Wait a second. But the majority of you listening will find that this applies to you. The best protection in any situation, whether we're talking violent crime, cybercrime, extortion, cryptocurrency, ransom attacks, whatever, is to not be a target. strains of philosophical thought have had things to say about the ethics of the wealthy. Philosophical output 
has usually been an activity of exclusively the wealthy class. Wittgenstein's table is named in honor of Ludwig Wittgenstein, a part-Jewish-British-Austrian philosopher who revolutionized two different schools of philosophy and worked in many fields, philosophy of logic and mathematics, and then later philosophy of mind and language. Listen to episode one of this podcast to hear more about Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein's family was wealthy, very wealthy. His father, Karl Wittgenstein, was one of the wealthiest men in the world. There isn't much writing done on Karl compared to Ludwig. Despite his wealth, his son gets the spotlight. Another son of Karl's, Paul Wittgenstein, was a concert pianist who lost his right arm in the First World War. He created new techniques that enabled him to play things formerly considered impossible with just his left hand. The piano song I'm playing in the background right now, under this narration, is actually a song for left hand alone, and so was the song before it. Composers of the day like Sergei Prokofiev, Maurice Ravel, Benjamin Britten, and many more wrote many pieces for Paul Wittgenstein on commission, though he didn't always end up playing them. But Ludwig Wittgenstein gave away his massive fortune to his siblings, three of whom ultimately committed suicide. The Wittgenstein family had billions of dollars, more than anyone who has made their money in the cryptocurrency boom, and yet they were plagued by sadness. And the one who did the best of all of them was the one who gave his wealth away. I'm just saying that there are possibly advantages, besides safety from ransom and wrench attacks, to not flaunting wealth. Most philosophical, spiritual, and ethical traditions, whatever you're into, agree with this. But perhaps that's discussion for a later time. At the very least, not being a target is reason enough to be careful. Hackers use deception. Social engineering tactics like fake emails, fake web pages, false senses of urgency, false senses of opportunity, and so on, to wage their war on us. As Sun Tzu famously says in The Art of War, all warfare is based on deception. What then is the best way to fight back? Deception. Deceptive information planted to suggest that you've lost your assets already can turn off attackers. Some people may have used it to turn off tax collectors in the past as well. Information misleading attackers as to your identity, your location, your activities. Misdirection is the ultimate form of security. Paint yourself as a non-target or mislead attackers into believing targets exist where they don't in fact exist. And you're safer than a man with ranks of armed bodyguards and alarm systems. A number of companies that aren't in the cryptocurrency space are developing solutions that visit random websites from your browser to obscure your history and make you less trackable and analyzable by big data, or that even send emails for plausible deniability. These projects let you create fields of noise that confuse observers and would-be attackers. The hardware wallet manufacturer Ledger 
gives you a piece of paper that actually has the numbers 1 through 24 on it to write down your recovery words. If I were to write down my recovery words, I'm not saying that I do or don't, I would write them in an order that only I knew, or maybe write them somewhere in a story, with red herrings here and there to mislead anyone that found the story. Because misdirection and creating false targets and false information out there is the best way to mislead attackers and other bad actors who might target you. The best form of misdirection is not to be a target. So let me make it clear here, in public, on the air, that I really haven't made much money from cryptocurrency. All right, I'm just throwing that out there. I haven't made millions of dollars from cryptocurrency. I'm not a target. Go find somebody else, guys. But look, despite the perennial wisdom of not making yourself a target, of misdirecting like the fake tombs in the pyramids, creating noise to confuse attackers, my suggestion from a few minutes ago still stands. Technological innovation that makes crypto unseizable by ransom attacks and wrench attacks may not be feasible. But if you have ideas how to make it so, you're camping on a gold mine. Get involved with your favorite crypto projects and pitch your ideas. If you need introductions, drop an email to peter at bitgenstein.com or to peter at icoalert.com, and I'd be happy to think about which project is best for you to get in touch with. I've got some great guests lined up for the coming weeks. We'll be talking about issues that are really important to me, like corruption and kickbacks in academia, how people who should know say that many journal articles in professional esteemed journals are just outright false, how cryptocurrency is not the first experiment in decentralized systems, how we can achieve greater censorship resistance in the international waters of space, and much more. I appreciate all of the great feedback and look forward to taking Wittgenstein's table to a whole new level soon. Please leave reviews, ratings, and share with your friends. And if you haven't heard the earlier episodes, go take a listen. They're usually bite-sized episodes of 20 to 30 minutes where we discuss philosophy, psychology, economics, history, how these things intersect with blockchain and cryptocurrency and with the decentralized future we want to build. Let me know what you think on Twitter or Medium at Bitkenstein. Bitkenstein's table and the music on it are researched, written, recorded, and produced by me, with the exception of the original theme song by Joseph Dickinson and music listed in the show notes. The couple of pieces this week that were for left hand alone were composed by Russian composer Alexander Skryabin. If you enjoy Bitkenstein's table, please tell a friend. <laughs>